Good morning, City Light. How are you guys doing today? Good, good to be here with you all. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Andrew Sherrible. I'm one of the co-directors of our college ministry here. Some people say that I'm Mike Brown's better half. Uh, just kidding. Please don't refer to me as that if you wouldn't mind. Uh, but I get to lead the college ministry here, and it's a privilege to be a part of this family. It's a privilege to be here and to get to dive into God's Word with you guys today. But first, I want to start by asking a question. And you guys have to raise your hands high, and you can't be ashamed. You have to admit it, okay? So with tomorrow being New Year's Eve, who here has formed resolutions or plans to form New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. All right, cool. It's a decent amount. Uh, so I did some research, and studies say that about 40% of Americans will make New Year's resolutions. So either we're low or some of y'all weren't raising your hand this morning. Uh, and I, I also found out that... No, 40% will make resolutions, uh, and some of the top resolutions each year fall into three categories, okay? These three categories, I'm sure you could guess them. Uh, saving more money, making better financial decisions, committing to a healthier lifestyle or hitting the gym more, or learning something new and reading more. And, and what I noticed about all of these resolutions is they're all a commitment to something that will bring a positive transformation in our lives. And I don't want to burst your guys' bubbles uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning, but surveys also show that 80% of people will have failed these New Year's resolutions by the end of February. Isn't that crazy? And surveys also show that 8 to 9% of people will actually see through their resolution the entire year. And I think all of this information, what it does is it shows us two things. One, people have a desire for positive transformations in their lives, Right? And I think the second thing that this information shows us is that people aren't rooted in a power that can actually bring true transformation to our lives. People aren't motivated by the right thing. So we have a problem here, right? Like people desire positive transformation, but they're not motivated by something that can bring it. And maybe, just maybe, the world isn't motivated by the right thing, and maybe, just maybe, the world isn't seeking the right transformation. But we, God's church, we're not called to look to the world, right? We're called to look to his word. So as we dive into Romans 12 today, I'm super excited to answer these two questions. What does have the power to sustain us? And what does have the power to bring transformation in our lives? So we're going to dive into Romans 12. If you guys want to open up your Bibles, we'll start in verse 1. As you guys are turning there, I'm going to pray for our time in God's word, and then we'll dive in together. Uh, Father, just thank you, God, that uh, it's exciting, 2019, a new year, God, and I just pray that through your word, Father, you would speak to us this morning, uh, that you would allow our hearts to be receptive to whatever you need us to hear, God, that you would just transform our lives by your power. God, this isn't about city light. God, uh, we can't change lives, but God, you can, so we just lift this time up to you, Father, and ask that you'd work, and we pray all these things in the power of Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so if you guys would read with me, Romans 12, 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, uh, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the first point that I want to draw from the text is a life committed to God. So Paul starts Romans 12 by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So Paul's about to make an appeal in light of everything that he has shared up until this point. And Paul just spent the previous 11 chapters 
of Romans, giving the most thorough explanation of the foundations of Christianity that we find in all of Scripture. And then verse 1, he begins to make this appeal for how we're to live a life committed to God as Christians. But first, he, he stops and he shows us the foundation that this commitment is built upon. And Paul sums up Romans chapters 1 through 11 with five words that give us the power to actually sustain us in our lives. These five words, all of chapters 1 through 11, summed up by, by the mercies of God. So Paul shows us that the means of our commitment to God are his mercy, and his mercy is the power that sustains us in our lives. So the foundation of a life committed to God is all in response to his mercy. There's no commitment to God apart from his mercy. And Paul spent 11 chapters expanding upon the beauty of God's mercy and how he demonstrated it to the world. And he showed us that God demonstrated his mercy in his plan to come and rescue rebellious people from their sinful ways. God demonstrated his mercy in sending King Jesus to live a perfectly obedient life and die for those that were disobedient to God. God shows his mercy, Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have to remember, he doesn't withhold this condemnation by waving a magic wand and just forgetting about our sin, but he actually poured that condemnation out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And when we trust in Jesus, God's mercy is displayed in that though the wages of sin is death, what we've earned, what we deserve from God is to be separated from. We've rebelled, we've ran away. In Jesus, the free gift of God is eternal life, restored relationship with the creator of the universe forever. We call him dad. And these are the mercies of God that Paul is talking about. He's saying, hey, in light of these mercies, be committed to God. These are the mercies that are going to sustain you in your life. These mercies motivate us, they sustain us, and they also awaken this desire in us to be committed to God. So he's making this appeal. It's crucial we don't miss this. He's making this appeal to people that see this mercy from God, to people that know God's infinite, abounding, unconditional, unmerited mercy. That's who Paul's making this appeal to. All we do is respond to what God has done. True motivation to live a life committed to God is all in response to what God's mercy has done in Jesus. So that's what it means to live by the mercies of God. And then in light of those mercies, Paul continues, and he makes an appeal at the end of verse 1. If you guys would read with me, the appeal we see is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So in other words, what Paul is saying here is, hey, in light of King Jesus' mercy, give your entire lives to God. Be fully committed to him. And it uses these words, a living sacrifice, which sounds kind of weird at first. But basically what it's calling us to is to live for God by dying to ourselves. And some of the commentaries and some Bible translations have even added to these verses that this form of being a living sacrifice is actually the only rational and logical way to live our lives in response to God's mercy. Isn't that crazy? In response to God's mercy, it only makes sense to present our lives to him. Romans 6, uh, verses 10 and 11 says this, For the death Jesus died, he died to sin 
once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus was the payment for our sin once for all, and because of that, we're dead to sin, and we're alive in Christ. And in response, this living sacrifice is sacrificing our lives in thanksgiving. It's giving our lives back to God in response to his mercy with a life of service and a life of generosity and a life of open-handedness, a life that isn't about our comforts and our desires and my wants and my needs, but a life that says, Jesus, in light of your sacrifice, I want to sacrifice my life for you. I want to live for you, King Jesus, in response to what you have done. So Jesus died as the payment for our sin, and we sacrifice our lives as praise in response to it. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. But how? Like, how do we live as this? A living sacrifice, it sounds kind of weird. What does that look like? And it, the word that it uses is our, our physical bodies, but we know in the next verse, Paul talks about the renewal of our minds. So it can't just be talking about our bodies. So a living sacrifice is, it is our body, but it's also our mind, our actions, our wills. A living sacrifice is presenting all of who we are to God in a way of thanksgiving that's pleasing to him. And then verse 1 at the end says that we're to present our lives, our actions, as holy and acceptable to God. Those are the words he uses. And Romans 6.13 gives insight as to what Paul means by this. Romans 6.13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So, so we get some clarity as to what this means, to present your body, to your life, your actions, your will to God as holy, is to use your body as an instrument of righteousness and not sin. We're vessels for God to work through for his righteousness, not for our own sin. But what does it look like, and how do we know the difference? And I think there's a few things we can ask ourselves to know if we're being used by God as instruments of righteousness or sin. Are we using our hands and our feet to serve God and serve others for his glory? Or are we using our lives just to serve ourselves and what we want? Are we using our mouths to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and our friends and our family? Or are we using our mouths to simply bring more praise to ourselves? Are we using our talents, our gifts, our resources to give to God's kingdom that people might know him? Are we just holding on to our resources and our gifts to try to build our own little kingdom of one? When we live to serve God, proclaim the gospel, and give open-handedly of our gifts and talents, that's what it means to present our lives to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, guys, there's some tension in this, right? Like, this is an incredibly high call to live your life by dying. When you put the words living and sacrifice together, it creates an oxymoron, right? Like when an animal was sacrificed in the Old Testament, it literally died. But we're called to be a living sacrifice. So a simple way of thinking of this is the continuous action of dying to yourself. It's a call to surrender your life in commitment to God. This passage is saying that in light of God's unconditional, infinite mercy, you didn't earn it. You were far from him, but by his mercy, he brought you near. He restored you to a relationship with him. In light of that, give your entire life back to him in worship. 
It, it isn't this begrudging thing. Oh man, Jesus died for me and I'm a churchgoer now, so now I have to give my life to him. No, it's a joyful surrender as worship to God for his mercy. Think, think about it this way. Uh, when I met Rachel, my wife, I was absolutely head over heels for her. I was crazy about her. I was like, man, why would that girl want to go out on a date with me? I don't know. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, and I would do anything to make Rachel laugh, okay? And I still will. It gets kind of weird around our household sometimes, I promise. Like, if you want to see it, follow her on Instagram. She posts weird clips of me all the time. But I was in love. And I think Rachel's greater today than I did the day that I met her. So much so that I got down on one knee and I said, Rachel, would you be my wife till death do us part? And she said yes. And throughout our engagement, uh, it was difficult. That was actually a really, really hard season for us. And we processed tons of past sin uh, in our lives. Um, just what does it look like to bring two people together? Um, and we were raising support to come on staff at City Light. Uh, we were planning a wedding. We were a lot of big life transitions. And in the midst of all this stress, instead of turning to God and resting in him, I turned back to past sin. And I not only sinned against God, uh, but I sinned against my soon-to-be wife. And I gave in to lustful thoughts and personal sexual impurity, and I had to confess that to Rachel. And in my sin, in confessing that to her, Rachel would have been completely just to be angry. Like, that would have been the proper response of her in light of my sin, but Rachel didn't give me what I deserved. She actually gave me mercy. She said, I love you, despite all of that. I want to pour out mercy and grace. I know that's not who you are, and I know who you are in Jesus, and I'm not going to give you anger. No, I'm going to give you mercy. And when I received that mercy from Rachel, what did it do? It, it awoke in me this desire to say, I want to commit all of my life to her even more. When I laid my sin before Rachel and she saw all of it and still demonstrated mercy, it made me say, I want to fight this sin. I want to battle to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to the woman that I love most. And God used this mercy, his mercy, demonstrated through Rachel in my life to bring about tremendous freedom in this area of my life. And it's brought about such a joy in my relationship with Christ, and it's brought so much joy in our marriage and I think that's what this verse means when it calls us to live for God by dying to ourselves. It's not begrudgingly, but it's to see God's mercy and to see our sin and how far we fall short of a perfect and holy God and say, God, you give me mercy despite how undeserving I am. I want to commit my entire life to you. And when we sin and we fall short and we're broken and we're messed up, but we see God's mercy displayed and his love being unconditional in Christ time and time again, it stirs this desire to say, I don't want to choose sin. God, I want to choose you. I want to fight to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. Seeing God's mercy gives us this desire to say, God, I want to be committed to you. And we won't be perfect. We never will be. But God's mercy isn't based off our good efforts. It's based on what Jesus has done. And in light of that, we strive to go all in for him. It's a joyful surrender as an act of worship to God. So my prayer, my hope, is that myself, that everybody in this room would see the mercies of God, and they would say, God, I, I want to fight my sin. God, I want to be transformed. God, I want to worship you with my whole entire life. But, but what about next September? Or what about next week? Or what about the next time that you give in to that sin that you promised that you never would again? 
Or what about the next time you don't do the thing that you know that God desires for you to do? And City Light, the good news is that God's mercy doesn't just save us, it sustains us. Like because of God's mercy, he will pursue us even when we run from him. God will hold on to us even when we feel far from him. God's mercy doesn't run out for you when you haven't opened up your Bible in a month. God's mercy doesn't run out whenever you struggle with the same sin. No, God's mercy is unconditional in Jesus Christ. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. It's completely wrapped up in Jesus. It's poured out on us as his children when we trust in him. How beautiful is that? Nothing can take it away. And in light of that, in light of that unconditional mercy that cannot change in God because of what he's done, we seek to be committed to him. We seek to make him our only treasure. He becomes our only treasure. We find our satisfaction in him, and it reveals to the world there's nothing more glorious than Jesus. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking, where else would we go? What is more beautiful than God's mercy? What is more powerful than God's mercy? God's mercy is the power that sustains us in our lives, and it's unconditional in Jesus. And as we commit our lives to him, not only does God sustain us, but he begins to transform us into something incredibly beautiful. So we'll continue reading in our passage. Uh, Romans 12, verse 2, says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the second final point that I want to make from our text today is a life transformed by God. So the first verse, Paul showed us, hey, this is what a life committed to God looks like in response to his mercy. And then in verse two, we see a life committed to God by his mercy leads to a life transformed by God. And he starts, and I don't think by mistake, by saying, do not be conformed to this world. The first part in the transformation is not conforming to this world. And pastor, theologian, D.A. Carson, uh, put it like this. He, he shared this quote. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and convince ourselves that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. To paraphrase Carson, in light of this passage, we have to understand that our natural bent is conformity to the world. Our natural bent is not to gravitate towards holiness, we gravitate towards our sin. We don't just become like Jesus, no, we gravitate towards our self-centered tendencies instead of living in the beautiful design that God has for us. So before we can be transformed by God, we have to realize our natural bent is to conform to this world. And I think conforming to this world can be summed up in living a self-centered life instead of a Christ-centered life. So what ways do we conform to the world well, just to name a few that I personally struggle with that I think we can relate to, we pursue satisfaction and pleasure in the things of this world instead of finding pleasure and satisfaction in God, which we were created for. We find our, 
uh, validation in, in our success and our accomplishments and the things that we can offer others instead of finding our identity in, as God's children who, who he's brought from death to life and he's redeemed and loved and we have an eternal relationship with. We, we hold tightly to our gifts, our resources, instead of giving to God's kingdom. We seek to be served instead of desiring to serve others. And we seek our comfort instead of sharing the gospel with those that need it. City Light, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, most of us can struggle with those things, right? We all have the temptation to conform to the world in, this, in those ways. But a life committed to God, it frees us from conforming to the self-centered ways of the world and it transforms us to a Christ-centered delight in God. Like, God frees us from those things. He doesn't just tell us not to do them. He's actually freeing us from them and transforming us into a life that we were created for, delighting in Him and His ways. And then the rest of our verse shows us what this transformation actually looks like to be transformed by God. So we'll look back at verse 2. It says, But be, sorry, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So I think the first most important thing to notice about this part of the verse is that it doesn't say, hey, go transform your life. It doesn't say, hey, you better have some really good New Year's resolutions this year if you want to make it. It doesn't say to set your goals and to try harder and to be better and to do all these really good things and to be an awesome Christian moral person. No, the verse says, be transformed. It's not by your power, but it's by God's power. We don't transform our lives, but God transforms our lives. And isn't that freeing? Isn't that beautiful to know that we don't have to muster up enough strength, but it's to be transformed by God's power? He's the one working in and through us. He's the one that's making us new. A life committed to God by his mercy, it's, it, it's inseparable. Or a life transformed to God is, is inseparable from responding to his mercy. So when we trust in Jesus, we commit our life to him, transformation will be inevitable as we focus on the mercies of God. And doesn't that make sense? Like, doesn't it make sense that when we've been adopted as God's children and we've been saved from our sin and brought to life in an eternal relationship with God, doesn't it make sense that we'd be transformed to, to live different? I think a good illustration of this, many of you know Anthony. He's on staff here. He did the call to worship today. Uh, and his wife, Allie, and if you don't know Anthony and Allie, you should introduce yourself because they're like the most Christ-centered people I know. They make me look so JV uh, as far as it being Christ-like goes, standing next to Anthony and Allie. They're amazing people, and just, I, don't, I think it was this year, it, it, maybe it was last year, I don't know, it's kind of blurring together, but we got to go down to the courthouse, I think this past year, and we got to celebrate with them the adoption of four of their boys. And it was beautiful. I don't know if a courtroom's ever looked like that, where there's balloons, and we're screaming and yelling, hooting and hollering. It was amazing. And we got to celebrate them adopting these four boys. And I couldn't help but have a tear come to my eye as I saw the judge make the decision that this adoption was official, that he said, these boys are now yours forever. This is your forever family. And the reason it brought a tear to my eye was not because these boys found a new uh, permanent residence, but because these boys gained a new identity. Like their lives were transformed forever. They gained two parents that are committed to loving them and serving them and pointing them to the love of Jesus for the rest of their lives. And these boys, by God's grace and his love through Anthony and Allie, are beginning to be transformed by the love of God. And by God's grace through Anthony and Allie, the boys are learning 
hey, don't conform to your old ways that you've learned, but be transformed by the love of God. And, and we get to watch. It's beautiful. These boys are literally being transformed before our eyes into the beautiful creation that God intended them to be. It's beautiful. And that's the same thing that God is doing in us. We're still stubborn. We still throw tantrums. We still struggle with our sin. Sometimes we still doubt God's goodness. But God, by his power, is committed to transforming us to know more of his love. He's committed to it. God is transforming us to know more of his love and walk in the life that he's created us for. He didn't just make us new. He didn't just make us a new creation, but he's renewing our minds. In Ephesians 4, verses 21 through 24, put it like this. As the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So this verse shows us that God, though we were corrupt with sinful, deceitful desires, is making us new in his likeness and his holiness and his righteousness. Then I blow your mind. Like the God of the universe, people. Infinite, glorious, created all things, created us to be in relationship with him, but we rebelled, not only saved us, didn't just come down and make a way, born as a baby as we celebrated a couple days ago, but he brought us to life and he's renewing us to look like him. I don't know about y'all, but knowing my past and knowing that Jesus is committed to make me look like him, that blows my mind. But God is committed to transforming us. And if you think about it this way, in light of these verses, uh, if I go into the weight room, right, and I'm trying to get a pump on, maybe that's going to be one of my new resolutions, I don't know, uh, but I go to the weight room, and I'm working hard, I'm trying to get fit, and I'm sweaty, and I come home, and then I'm going to a wedding, let's say, and I want to look fresh at this wedding, okay, and I put on my best suit, and I look all great, but the only problem was is that I ran out of time, and I was killing in the weight room, and now I'm in this suit, and I didn't have the time to take a shower. Now I put on a new suit, and I took off my old stinky clothes, but the problem is that I wasn't cleansed, and over time, the fresh suit is going to get stinky, right? And in Ephesians 4, verse 22, it says, put off the old, and verse 24 says, put on the new, but we can't forget verse 23 that says, we must be cleansed. Our minds must be renewed. We must think in a new way. We must be given new desires and a new identity in Christ. It's not about just putting on good Christian behavior, but it's about an inward Christ-like transformation. And if we don't have that, it's going to get pretty stinky again, okay? Responding to the mercies of God is being transformed by the eternal forgiveness that we've received in Jesus and striving to live lives that bring glory to him. We, we don't just get rid of our old actions and put on new actions. No, we're actually cleansed by King Jesus. We're made new by the God of the universe. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're a new creation, and God is going to transform you. God is going to transform me. He's going to renew our minds. He's committed to it. And as God transforms us, we begin to see evidence of it in our lives. So we'll finish the verse. Rest of verse 2, it says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So when this verse says the will of God, we hear that a lot. What's the will of God for my life? Well, when it says will of God here, it's not talking about God's plan for your life, but it's talking about God's pattern for your life. So, So God has this beautiful pattern that he made for all of his creation and for his children, his image bearers, to live in. So we know that in the Garden of Eden, right, Adam, Eve, they committed sin, they rebelled against God, and this beautiful pattern that God gave us was broken, and sin entered the world. But Jesus came into the world to redeem that brokenness, to enter into it, to make all things right. And Jesus didn't just die as the payment for our sin, but he actually demonstrated the pattern that we're supposed to live by. So so as we pursue Jesus and we receive his mercy and we walk in relationship with God, we have to ask ourselves the question, Is our life conforming to the things of this world, or is our life being transformed to the pattern of God's beautiful design? And as God renews our minds by his mercy, we grow to live a life that's good and pleasing to him, not by trying harder, not by being better, not to earn God's love, but in response to his mercy, we begin to live in the way that he's created us for by his power as our worship. Isn't that beautiful? God's mercy is made it possible for broken, sinful people to be restored to a perfect relationship with God. God's mercy, though we were guilty of our sin, made us innocent in Jesus. God's mercy allows us to commit our lives to him wholeheartedly and worship him with everything that we have. And as we surrender surrender to him, he transforms us into something beautiful. God didn't just cancel the debt of our sin, but he's actually redeeming the detriment that it had in our lives. He didn't just cancel the debt. He's redeeming the detriment of the sin in our lives. Isn't that beautiful? He didn't just forgive us. He's making us new. He's transforming us from the inside out by his power. City Light, God has so much more for us than eating healthier, getting more fit, and saving more money in 2019. God is actually committed to transforming each of his children by his love. And New Year's resolutions are great, and goals are good, but we have to ask ourselves the question, are these goals and resolutions conforming to the world, or are they transforming us by God's love? Are your goals, your ambitions, your desires, your aspirations, your dreams, are they motivated by the things of this world, or are they rooted in God's infinite mercy in your life? Is that what your goals and your ambitions are in response to? And maybe you're here, and this is the first time that you've actually heard what it means to be a Christian, to know God by his mercy, not to earn anything, not to clean your life up, but to actually respond to the mercy of God displayed on the cross through Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, I don't know where you're at, but if that's you, if you've never truly responded to God's unconditional mercy in becoming his child, I want you to know with supreme confidence that God desires for you to have that relationship with him. God desires for you to have the abundant life, to walk in the patterns that he's created you for. God desires to know you. God desires to walk with you. God desires to redeem the detriment of the sin in your life. But it starts with turning from our corrupt desires and trusting in his mercy displayed on the cross. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus' mercy, I want to ask, might 2019 be the first year? Would God lead you that in 2019, the first year that you walk into saying, I'm committed to King Jesus in response to his mercy? Not to earn his love, 
Not because I'm trying to be a good, moral person, but because I believe Jesus is my Savior and I see my need, and I'm committed to living in response to that. If you haven't made that decision, I, I would plead with you, would you do that? And if you're in this room and you have trusted in Jesus, praise God. I want to challenge you, would you reflect on all of God's mercy this past year, uh, the past your whole life, all of God's mercy that he's given you in Jesus, would you reflect on it? Would you delight in it? And I want to challenge you, if you call Jesus Lord, would you continue to go all in? Would you give all of your life as a sacrifice of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for you? Would you truly be a living sacrifice? And when you hear the words, a living sacrifice, that doesn't sound like a person that's one foot in and one foot out, right? It doesn't sound like a person that has Jesus as, as a piece of the pie. It sounds like a person that knows that their entire life has been purchased by King Jesus. That's my challenge for you. If you're here and you call Jesus Lord, would you live as a living sacrifice, committed to God, not to earn anything, but to worship him, to live the life that you were created for? And, and friends, I know there's areas of my life that I'm not all in. If we're being real, and that's okay, it's God's mercy is unconditional in Christ, right? But would we respond? Would we say, God, I want to give my life to you, and by your mercy, I'm going to seek to give everything that I have for your glory. And in response to his mercy, would we be committed to him? Would we be transformed by him, not only in 2019, but for the rest of our lives, would it be marked by living for God, by dying to ourselves, would our whole lives, not just Sunday morning, not just at Citigroup, would our whole lives be lifted up as worship to God in response to the gospel, that he's freed us in Jesus unconditionally, we have eternal life with him. Would our whole lives be worship in response to that? Let's pray.